Welcome to another episode of Bump, Birth and Beyond, a podcast proudly brought to you by Tiny Hearts Education and hosted by myself, Joseph Scroy. And on today's episode, we're joined by Vanessa. We're going to talk about both her journeys of pregnancy from Theodore, Teddy, who's two and a half years of age, and also William, who's just at the age of nine weeks. So welcome to you, Vanessa. How are you today? Good. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. And uh, thank you for sharing your stories. So I thought we might just touch base and say, and, and just talk a little bit about leading up to pregnancy with Theodore. How long did it take you guys to become pregnant? Uh, so we were very fortunate to become pregnant quite quickly with uh, Theodore. So I came off the pill uh, in the, like the beginning of March and I was pregnant six weeks later. Magnificent. <laughs> very common people do that. They, I think the pill sort of suppresses the ovarian function, sort of suppresses the, the ovaries. And as soon as you release the suppression, the ovaries go, thank God I can actually breathe. And they produce this egg. Then Bob's your uncle, you get pregnant the first month. So there wasn't much practicing. No, no, there wasn't. It did happen quite quickly for us. And um, we were quite surprised, but uh, very, very happy to be pregnant. That's awesome. So little Teddy obviously is now two and a half. Tell us a little bit about just, you know, in terms of finding out you were pregnant. Were you sort of, you know, what did you do in order to, to I mean, you obviously did a wee on a stick uh, test, but, um, you know, how did, how did you tell your partner? Um, so I was pretty impatient when it came to um, doing the test. So I think I was still a few days before my um, period was due and uh, my husband had said to me, just wait until you're at least a week over before you do the test. And impatient me went, nope. Um, and he went down the street one day and I thought, there's a spare pregnancy test in that drawer. I'm going to do it. Um, Pete on the stick. Obviously, the lines came up and, yeah, he got home and I just sort of went out to him and I said, uh, I'm pregnant. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, so it wasn't anything, you know, big and special. It was just, yep, it's happening. <laughs> How did he take the news? Yeah, he, he took it really well. He'd been ready for kids for quite a while. Um, so he had been waiting on me to be ready. Um, so he was very happy. So what what made you then ready to have a child? I mean, how long how long have you guys been together? And and so what what point did you then say mm, I'm ready now? Uh, so we've been together for I think at that stage ten years, married for two. Um, and I guess I'd always just been really career focused. So. Um, both of us were are both nurses um, and we just, we'd done our post-grad studies and I don't know, for me, I just, I knew I always wanted children, but um, yeah, for, for quite a number of years, I just sort of kept making those excuses of, oh no, we've got this wedding coming up. Um, and then all of a sudden it just, yeah, I just sort of woke up one day and went, I'm ready. So, <laughs> and then yeah, little Teddy was coming along. <laughs> Magnificent. So obviously a lot of joy. There would have been a few people going, tell, saying to both of you, what's going on? You've been together for 10 years and finally they get the news. A lot of people would have been happy by that, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, we actually didn't tell um, anybody. So we kept it a secret. We only told our parents at about 13 weeks um, that we were pregnant and everyone else found out at uh, 17 weeks. But, um, yeah, my mum had been thinking, you know, when we told um, 
our parents and my mum said, oh, I just really didn't think it was going to happen for you, Ness. Um, and she, yeah, so they'd been sitting there for quite a while waiting for me to say, I'm pregnant. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. And so um, a lot of people nowadays are doing the sort of the Down syndrome screening test, the non-invasive perinatal screen, but which goes by many names uh, in a commercial sense, so Percept, Harmony, Panorama, the list goes on. Um, did you guys do that test? We did. We, oh, we did the NIPT testing. Yeah, the NIPT. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we did that. Um, and Did you find uh, out the sex of the baby? No, so we decided to keep it a surprise. Uh, so all my sisters had found out what they were having with their kids and I just really had, I really wanted to have that surprise at the birth. Um, yeah, so we decided to keep it a nice little secret. <laughs> and was everything great with the non-invasive perinatal screening test? It was, yeah, that was all, uh, that all came back clear. Um, it, we didn't actually find out well, actually, my obstetrician had said, you know, no news is good news for me. Um, so, yeah, I just assumed the test was all all good. And then we went along to our 13-week um, scan and um, everything was um, tracking along fine. So, um, the sonographer was um, saying, you know, this was looking good. Uh, but I did notice the second half of the scan, she started to really focus around Theodore's neck. Um, and it kind of got my ears pricking up a little bit. I'm sort of thinking, oh, what is she doing? And then she started to ask um, just questions along the way of, you know, how old are you? And um, is this your first pregnancy? And that sort of got me thinking, you know, is she seeing something that I'm not? Um, and then afterwards, she, she, that's when she said to us, um, yeah, she sort of said, do you tell me what your understanding is of this scan? And, and I knew straight away that um, she had, you know, found something. Um, and then I just, yeah, I pretty much froze and my husband went on to explain to her what we thought the scam was all about. Um, and she said, look, I'm just going to turn the lights on. Let's just have a bit of a chat. Um, and that's so what, what, had, what had she found? So she had found that uh, the the fluid around the neck or the, the nuchal translucency, I think that's what it's called, um, with Theodore was measuring on the higher side. So I think she said, Theodore's was about 3.3 and I think anything over 3.5 she said was sort of suggestive of a chromosomal abnormality or cardiac defects. Uh, yeah, but she so, hadn't, sorry, keep going. Well, she, hadn't, she said she hadn't seen anything on the scan to indicate Down syndrome or any cardiac abnormalities but that it was a bit too early as well and they would need to do a follow-up scan. For us. So, yes, I might just explain a couple of things to our listeners. So, the first thing that most people do nowadays in terms of Down syndrome screening is they do this non-invasive perinatal screening test, which effectively is looking to see whether there's any chromosomal abnormalities with the baby, which is very distinct from genetic abnormalities, which are things like cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, fragile X. And nowadays, the recommendation for all women and couples considering pregnancy or who indeed are pregnant is to be offered genetic carrier screening, and we've talked about that in previous episodes of, of uh, Bump Birth and Beyond. 
But in addition to that, also during pregnancy, you're offered this non-invasive perinatal screening test. And the best way of describing this test is imagine you've got a pair, well, in fact, as humans, we all have a pair of 22 chromosomes plus also our sex chromosomes. So what makes you a female is the fact that you've got two ones, two twos, all the way through until you hit 22, plus an X and an X. And if you were to imagine those chromosomes as if they're Lego towers, you could create 22 Lego towers with two Lego blocks on each one of those chromosomes all the way until you hit 22, and then, of course, the X and the X as well. And around about 10 weeks, the baby's DNA starts floating around in the maternal blood, and we can pick up that DNA by a simple blood test. And so effectively, when we then look at the blood and we look at these Lego towers, in actual fact, they're four high, two representing the chromosomes of mum and two representing the chromosomes of, of the baby. And of course, therefore, all the towers should be four high. When we're trying to exclude Down syndrome in pregnancy, we know that um, pregnancies affected by Down syndrome have an additional chromosome 21. So in other words, rather than just having the two Lego blocks, they'll have the three Lego blocks. So if we look at the maternal circulation of blood at 10 weeks and we, we look at those towers, we'd find that tower 21 would actually be five high and that test would screen positive for Down. Of course, the non-invasive perinatal screening test also tells us about the sex chromosomes as well and that's why we can tell whether it's a baby boy or a girl. And I must say that there's only two reasons for screening for Down syndrome. Number one, you'd better prepare for having a child with special needs. Or number two, you'd act on the result by medically interrupting the pregnancy. If you don't want to know and you wouldn't terminate a pregnancy, then it's not a test that anyone should do. That said, with that result, it's really reassuring. If you have a negative result on the non-invasive perinatal test and it says that everything's normal, then go ahead and do the 12-week scan. And, of course, the 12 and the 13-week scan, like you said, the doctors there look at the nuchal translucency, which is the thickness of the baby's neck. Anything that's above 2.5 millimetres is generally considered to be at the upper end of normal. And they will look for things in the baby in terms of a cardiac abnormality to see whether that is contributing to the thickness of the neck. But, of course, this is also a soft sign, what we term a sign that is consistent with other chromosomal abnormalities and so often they will in some cases advise um, some sampling of the tissue of the placenta or alternatively the fluid around the baby just to confirm that the chromosomes are absolutely normal. In actual fact having a normal non-invasive perinatal screening test even with a nuchal translucency that's greater than three doesn't mean your risk of Down syndrome is quite high. In actual fact the background risk is around 1 in 400. So it's still pretty low, even mm. if you have an increased nuchal translucency. So in some cases, the decision to actually put a needle in the belly and do a CVS, which carries a risk of somewhere in the order of 1 in 100 to 1 in 200 of miscarriage, or alternatively, an amniocentesis, which is a 1 in 200 to, so let's say, a 1 in 400 risk of miscarriage, can almost be counterbalanced or weighed equally with the risk of actually having a, a, a chromosomal abnormality, which is about one in 400. So the non-invasive perinatal screening test on its own is pretty good. And this soft marker doesn't mean too much in the context. It does, the, the increased nuchal translucency can sometimes provide a little bit of anxiety, but in actual fact, it's often, it's often a sign that we use to look for other things without actually having to stress too much about it. But but what yeah. sort of advice were you given, given the fact that the nuchal translucency was up a little bit? 
Um, so uh, we were pretty lucky. We had an appointment with our obstetrician straight after the scan. So uh, we went in there pretty um, feeling a little bit deflated. Um, and he had basically pretty much just said exactly what, what you said, Ben, um, but recommended that we have another scan at 16 weeks um, and then plus or minus an amniocentesis. So we decided to, we went back and booked in our scan for the 16 weeks um, and uh, that scan looked really good. So there was no um, abnormalities noted with Theodore um, and so we were given the option whether or not we wanted an amniocentesis or not and pretty much the doctor said to me she said look if you if you're someone who is going to go through the rest of your pregnancy um, fretting or you know stressing that um, something is wrong with your baby then an amniocentesis would probably be good for you um, but otherwise you could walk away today um, you know, and, and you, your baby might have a chromosomal abnormality, but your baby could be perfectly healthy and normal as well. So um, I guess working in paediatrics myself, I just, for me, I just needed to have that comfort and to know, um, you know, if Theodore did have um, a chromosomal abnormality to be able to prepare for that for the rest of the pregnancy and, and his birth and so forth. So we decided to have the amnio. Um, at 16 weeks, yeah. So for those people who don't know what an amniocentesis is, it's a collection of the, the baby, as we know, sits in a big sack. And in that sack, there's obviously fluid, which is called the amniotic fluid. And in, the, in that fluid is actually the skin cells of baby that float around within the fluid. So what the sonologist does, and, and the sonologist is a doctor who's an obstetrician and gynecologist who specialises in women's um, ultrasound, what they do is they pass a fine needle, which is mildly uncomfortable. I've, I've obviously witnessed a few of them, which passes from the tummy directly into the uterus and takes a sample of fluid. Uh, it's a sort of a straw-coloured fluid, which then goes off to our cytogenetics department where they obviously uh, culture the cells and determine whether the DNA structure or the chromosomes are normal. Um, and, of course, as I explained before, there is a very small risk, uh, whether that be some in the order of one, one in 200 to one in 400 of miscarriage. So it's not done lightly, as you rightly said, Vanessa. There's a way up of, yeah. you know, how, how much you need to know the information versus, um, you know, not knowing the information, so to speak, um, and, of course, providing, the, providing you reassurance for the reign of the pregnancy. So am I right in saying that everything was okay with the test in the end? Yes, everything perfect in the end. Um, so finding out that news was was really it was a massive weight was just lifted off our shoulders, and um, we could then you know we felt comfortable then telling everyone that we were pregnant at at seventeen weeks. Um, so it was quite hard to keep it a secret for that long. And yeah, little Teddy was fine, and we were um, then told by my obstetrician. Um, he said, you know, it's time to enjoy a, a nice, you know, normal, healthy pregnancy. So, Definitely. So how did the remainder of the pregnancy go then with Theodore? Um, it was pretty good. I was sick up until 20 weeks with uh, Theodore. So I just had really um, horrid nausea and um, dry retching that uh, was just really persistent and um, quite difficult to get through. But after I got over that, that 20-week 
mark, everything just turned a corner and I felt great and I was loving pregnancy. Um, I had a little bit of uh, pelvic girdle pain from about 28 weeks or so. Um, But yeah, I was just loving life and loving pregnancy and hoping to go well and truly overdue with him. (laughs) And were there there any remedies that you can share that helped you with the nausea and the vomiting? Um, Yeah, look, initially I tried uh, like the ginger, um, you know, resting whenever I could. It was a bit hard with shift work um, in the first three months of my pregnancy. I did a lot of night duty, so I think that probably set me back quite a bit, um, but I I did take um, on Danzatron and Maxalon. I had to do that to get through pretty much. Um, yeah, it was pretty rough. <laughs> I think the other thing I think is also if you're doing late shifts and stuff like that, in actual fact, being tired will actually make you feel nauseated as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I pretty much just couldn't, uh, for the first five months, just couldn't watch any TV. That was enough to just make me dry retch. Um, so I'd just be in bed at eight o'clock and sleeping away and then I'd sleep during the day and <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was quite tough. And for those first 20 weeks, I thought, you know, look, pregnancy is just not for me. Um, but yeah, lucky it, it turned the corner and, and then I could enjoy the remainder of it. And did you... Were you vomiting or was it just the dry reaching? No, I never had any vomiting. Um, I just continually had this dry retching and it would be, you know, every 10 minutes I would I'd dry retch. It, would, it was just as simple as sitting up, um, walking from one end of the house to the other and I would dry retch, you know, three to five times. Um, yeah, it was I couldn't be a passenger in the car. I had to drive everywhere. <laughs> Uh, it was just like someone had thrown me into a washing machine for five months. So, yeah. And so 20 weeks, the ultrasound scan was good? Yes. Yep. The scan was good. Uh, we It looked like we had a little, what we call a yogi baby. His legs were right up at his um, head and we've got this amazing um, ultrasound picture that just makes us laugh and smile every time we look at it. So. I, was, I was thinking maybe you were talking about the yogi bear. Isn't oh, that right, Boobie? No. <laughs> no, yoga baby. <laughs> yoga baby, not yoga. Baby. And uh, so tell us what happened in that latter part of the pregnancy then. Yeah, so um, like I said, everything was going along really well. I just had some of that pelvic girdle pain. Um, and then I always sort of measured, I think it was from around 33 weeks maybe, I started to measure a little behind with the fundal height, um, but my obstetrician wasn't worried at all. He said, you know, you're quite a petite person. Um, you're not going to have the biggest baby in the nursery. Um, and Bubs, you know, looked happy and um, my belly was still, you know, growing. It was just a few, I guess, I think I measured about three weeks behind or so. Um, and, yeah, it was I, I, it wasn't until I think I got to maybe uh, 37 weeks or so um, and I think Theodore was measuring, yeah, around about that 35-week mark, I think, on, from memory. Just explain that to people. When One of the human quirks, I suppose, or human nature quirks is that the uterus, generally speaking, grows one centimetre a week from 20 weeks 
and so and so if we as obstetricians or midwives uh, measure from the pubic symphysis, which is the sort of the, the, the pelvic bone, to the top of the uterus, generally speaking, for every centimetre after 20 weeks, it matches the weeks of the pregnancy. So if you're 28 weeks and you get a tape measure and you measure from the from the um, uh, pubic symphysis to the top of the uterus, it should be 28 centimetres. If you're 37 weeks, it should be 37 week, uh, 37 centimetres. However, we do know that unfortunately, obviously, women have different body habit- habituses and so some women will be a little bit bigger than others and sometimes you might wear, you know, some jeans that are quite thick or whatever the case might be, although we should always be measuring right on the bone, not, not through clothes. And so there will always be this element of discrepancy. And within reason, we expect that 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 sort of difference between the gestational age or how many weeks pregnant you are compared to how much you're measuring might be around about two to three centimetres. So we'll give or take a little bit. So if you're 35 weeks and you're measuring 33 or 32, uh, 34 weeks, 34 centimetres rather, we'll let it slip. But if it's more than that, we get a little bit concerned about potentially the baby being a little bit smaller. Now, a lot of obstetricians that people might be seeing now have dispensed with the tape measure. Certainly in my own practice I have because what I do is actually measure the baby in terms of its growth and I do a growth scan at every visit. So I'm actually having a look at baby to see how well Bubba's growing. And the most sensitive measurement in terms of a baby is not actually mum's belly size but rather the baby's belly size. So the belly size or the, you know, if you imagine you're putting a belt around the baby, that has a has a defined number of millimetres it should be per gestational age. And we can work that out and determine what centile the baby might be in or how big the tummy size is relative to other babies. And if we see a drop-off of the abdominal circumference or the belt size around the baby, then that's indicative that perhaps the baby's growing a little bit small. And the reason why the tummy is most sensitive is because this is where the baby stores all its energy. So the liver stores glycogen as a form of energy for the baby and the liver makes up the vast majority of the circumference of the belly. So if the belly, if the baby rather is starved of energy, then the liver won't be as plump and as a result, the abdominal circumference will be smaller. So hence why most of us now will look specifically at the abdominal circumference of the baby. But of course, not everyone has an ultrasound machine and particularly in the private, public sector rather private sector you know we don't have access to machines all the time so the, the tape measure is actually a really good instrument to gauge whether the baby's you know small or not and then to indicate to the obstetrician or the midwife to perhaps go and get a formal growth scan to see that the baby is indeed the right size so you said at 37 weeks we thought bubble was a bit small did your obstetrician then send you off for a formal scan or did he or she do one themselves no, so um, Peter just did one in his rooms. Um, so he he wasn't concerned at all because, like like he said, um, he said you know you're quite petite and um, you're tracking along fine. It was only a couple of centimeters behind. Um, so I I do remember at 38 weeks that's when he started doing the routine scans in his room. Um, and at the 38 week. Mark, um, everything looked really good. So Theodore was really squished in there. He said, you know, your baby um, pretty much can't move. <laughs> um, and the, the fluid around him looked really good. Um, and at that stage, I'd sort of said to him that I'd been experiencing a bit of 
period cramping. Um, and he said, look, that's just all, they're all good signs. Um, and sent me away and said, I'll see you in a week's time. Um, and then we did another scan at 39 weeks. Um, and yeah, I think Theodore was measuring around about like 36 weeks or so. Um, and the, but the only difference with this one was that the um, fluid around him had dropped quite significantly. So just to explain about the fluid. So the fluid is actually, it sounds a bit gross, but it's actually baby's wee. And so in, when the placenta doesn't work as well, preferentially what the baby decides to do is send blood to the very vital organs that it has, which predominantly is its brain. It loves its brain and to the exclusion of other organs. And the reason why the liver and the kidney aren't necessarily required in terms of the baby being in the belly is because the placenta is forming the function of the liver and the kidney, so metabolising and sort of excreting everything that the kidney and the liver would otherwise do. So in actual fact, in periods of starvation for the baby, um, it'll send blood to the brain and then it won't send blood to the kidney or the liver. And so the kidneys, as we know, are the major organ that filter our blood and therefore produce urine as well. So if the kidneys are devoid or having had a reduced amount of blood supply, then of course the fluid or the urine coming out of the baby will be diminished. And that'll be picked up in our ultrasound scans by a decrease in the amniotic fluid index or the AFI. And so that's often an indication for us that we're sort of getting to the point where Bubba probably needs to make its way out into the journey rather than into the, into the real world as opposed <laughs> to stay inside the womb. So that sort of, that decision was made, what, how many weeks were you when that decision was made? Uh, so that was at 39 weeks. So uh, the week prior, um, the AFI had been, I think, nine centimetres and um, Peter had said at the 39 week um, that it was lucky, he was lucky to see sort of four or five centimetres um, and there was really only sort of one very small pocket of fluid that he could see. So um, he, yeah, he, he advised us um, to do an induction that afternoon um, just given that Teddy was measuring on the smaller side and that there had been that big drop in fluid. Um, and, yeah, he, he sort of just turned around to us and he said, you know, have you got your bags in the car? And, um, you know, it's, I think it's time to get, this, you know, your bubba out and, and meet um, your baby. And we were just like, oh, what? We're not ready. <laughs> um, I sort of had it in my head that I was definitely. Hadn't, gonna- been, t- hadn't it been 10 years? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I guess, I, like I said, I'd been enjoying pregnancy so much. So for me, I was thinking I'm definitely going to 41 weeks. Um, so at 39 weeks, I don't even think I had my hospital bag fully packed. Um, yeah, and there was, you know, there was still the house was a mess. I'd been in full nesting mode the last few days prior to that. Um, but yeah, we just he 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 gave us a few options. He said, "Look, you know, we can induce you this afternoon." Um, and or he said you can come back tomorrow um, and but he said you know he he told us that he had was going into state for the next day so um, I pretty much said well um, then it's happening tonight because um, 
you know, we, we wanted him there and we'd had built up a really great relationship with him. So um, the thought of having, you know, a completely different doctor um, come in the next day and then, um, yeah, do the induction, I just didn't really feel comfortable with. Um, and, yeah, and interestingly enough, he did say to me, he said, you know, look, do you mind if we just do a vaginal examination just to see on the type of induction that you will need? Um, and I was already three centimetres dilated. So, yeah. Ted, he, Ted, knew, Teddy knew it was time. Yeah, yeah, Teddy knew it was time. <laughs> so presumably the waters were broken the next morning and you started the hormone drip? No, no. So we actually went home. Um, so my appointment was like at one o'clock and I came back to the hospital at, uh, I think it was 4.35 o'clock that evening. Um, so we decided uh, because Peter was uh, leaving the following, like that next morning that we would do it that night um, before he before he left. <laughs> uh, yeah. On. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty full on. Um, yeah. But we were, I must we were, admit, though, I can I can understand I can understand your um, you know wanting to be with the obstetrician. I I, I remember that you know that I'm pretty much on call twenty four seven, literally three hundred and sixty five days a year. I think yeah. given COVID yeah. at the moment, you know, I was planning to have a holiday in September, but my last holidays were we're now in July. My last holidays were twelve months ago. My next holidays will be in January two thousand and twenty one. Yeah, wow. So I've Literally in the last 365 days, probably had maybe two days off, otherwise been on call the whole time. And and I remember there was one time where I had to go away, um, and and I said to my I said to the patient, look, you know, keep your legs crossed this weekend because I'm, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not going to be around. And uh, you know, there you do you build up such a and I I must admit even I feel not dis- disappointed, it's not the word, but feel like I've I've failed um, my patients if I'm not there and around. And and she said, oh, no, 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 you can't leave, you can't leave. <laughs> if I have the baby on this, you know, Saturday and Sunday when you're away, you know, then, you know, so it's interesting. I mean, I think every woman has that, particularly if you develop a really good rapport with your opposition, has that sense of, you know, I, you know, I don't want you to leave. So it, it is a, it is quite a um, an emotive thing, I think. So how yeah, did it go? Obviously, the waters were broken then at five o'clock, and presumably the drip was started. Yeah, so I had um, my waters broken at around about yeah five o'clock, um, and pretty soon, I think it was about forty-five minutes later, they put the drip up. But when my waters were broken, um, I remember saying to Peter, um, "Are they broken yet?" And he said, "Yeah, they are," um, but he said. There's pretty much nothing that has come out. Um, and, yeah, interestingly enough, um, like when, you know, your, your waters break, you you put on a pad and you measure how much is coming out and so forth. Um, and I think I had the same pad on for the entire labour and it was just bone dry. There was just absolutely nothing. Um, so it was a good decision in the end. Um, but, yeah, as soon as my waters were broken, um, my contractions started um, pretty much straight away, actually. Um, and I remember sort of standing there and I said to my husband, um, I think I'm having contractions, but I don't know, you know, if they are or not. But I said, I feel like they're coming every three minutes. Um, but they were pretty, I was pretty comfortable. I was still walking around the room. And then the midwife came in and, and she put the drip up and um, 
I sort of thought to myself, I I feel like I don't need the drip, but at the same time, um, I just went along with the process. And um, so, how long was your labour in the end? Uh, Five hours. Oh, fast one. (laughs) Yeah, very fast, very fast, and very intense. (laughs) So, what time was uh, uh, Theodore born? Uh, He was born at. 9.25. 9.25. So, um, yeah, so they put the syntocin drip up um, and then pretty much my contractions were just on top of each other. I didn't get a bit of a break. Um, so I was soon on the gas, uh, which I think I was only on that for around about an hour and a half and that just made me really nauseous and I was just dry retching pretty much constantly and I ended up just throwing it away and said, you know, don't hand that back to me. Um, yeah, and then uh, I think it was around about 8 o'clock I got the urge to start pushing with him um, and the midwife said, oh, look, I think you better jump up on the bed and we'll just check you because I don't think you'll be ready. And I said, no, I'm ready. Um, <laughs> so uh, she jumped up, she had a look and I had a bit of a cervical lip. So she said, look, whatever you do, don't start pushing um, you're not ready yet. She said, um, I think you're about an hour away. And at that point, um, I was just starting to lose my mind a bit. Um, yeah, I just thought, no way, I'm not waiting an hour. Um, and I think it was around maybe like it wasn't long after that, I started pushing and she said, um, I'm just going to go and call your doctor and, and tell him to come in. Uh, yeah, and I think I only pushed for around uh, 29 minutes with Teddy. Um, yeah, and it was, yeah, it was pretty awesome. Did he make it? He did, yeah, he did make it. Um, and I think at that stage when he had made it, I'd done a few pushes, but I guess they were only sort of really practice pushes. Um yeah, and then when he arrived, that's when um, it all, it, you know, it was all happening. I, I loved the pushing phase and, um, yeah, it was probably my favourite part of the labour. I just loved every minute of it. So in between contractions, we were just talking and joking around and, um, yeah, and then I remember Peter um turning around to my husband and saying, oh, do you want to come down and help? And um, my husband throughout the pregnancy, I had asked him, you know, do you want to deliver our baby? And he said, absolutely no way. That's what we're paying the obstetrician for. Um, And I said, oh, you know, it would be quite nice though to do it. You know, you don't get to have an experience like that. and, yeah, and so Peter turned around to him and said, do you want to come down and help? And, and my husband was like, yeah, sure. Um, and I remember thinking, what the hell is he doing? Like he didn't want to do this. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, literally a few minutes later, um, Peter said to me, Ness, you need to open your eyes because your baby's here. And I opened my eyes and he was uh, my husband holding little Teddy so up in the air and, yeah, and he was put onto my chest and, yeah, it was just absolutely incredible. And just, I suppose, we have to put a bit of realism into all of this because, you know, some women out there will go five hours and 25 minutes of pushing. I mean, for a first-time mother, we would generally speaking expect sort of one centimetre an hour from the time that we get to three centimetres. So what happens when a woman goes into labour is that first part of labour 
can sometimes get the cervix from being very tightly closed to three centimetres. And that might take several hours, like four or five, six or seven hours. And in actual fact, you'd already achieved that in the rooms when you were first examined. So you're already at three centimetres, which gave you a really good head start. But a lot of women say, oh, I was in labour for so long. But the active phase of labour really starting at three centimetres so from three centimetres then to 10 centimetres, we'd expect that to be around about seven hours. And then in most women who are pushing for the first time, particularly if their baby's a nice size, not a small size, will be in the order of an hour to two hours. So one can expect that, you know, the total labour from active, active labour from three centimetres to fully dilated, then plus also pushing and having the bubba is approximately nine hours. How much did Teddy weigh in the end? Uh, he was 2.9 kilograms in the end. So he was a small, tiny tot, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. So he was pretty small. Um, and, yeah, and finding out that we had had a boy. So I think it took me a few minutes. I was in quite a bit of shock, actually, um, you know, when you see your baby for the first time. And I think I was just a little bit stunned, like, oh, oh my God, he's here. Um, but I didn't know that he was a boy at that stage. And I think it was a few minutes had passed. And I looked up to my husband and I said, oh, what if we had? Um and he said, we've had a boy. And so I did the whole like leg yanking up and I was like, oh my goodness, it's a boy. And um, yeah, I was convinced that, you know, I was having a girl for the whole pregnancy. So I was absolutely stoked to have a little boy. That's awesome. Yeah. So you must have been a reasonably good bubber if you went on and got, a, got pregnant pretty much a year or so later. Um, yeah, we, we were actually very... I say to my husband now because the contrast between the boys is, is very different. Um, but uh, in, in the newborn phase with Theodore was uh, really, really difficult and, and I did develop some postnatal anxiety uh, with that. So it, it was a challenging sort of three, four months initially with him. Um, but then we just sort of turned turned the corner and um, we were very spoilt by three months. Teddy was sleeping, you know, 12 hours a night um, and I was on maternity leave and I remember saying to my friends, I just feel like I'm on a holiday. Um, <laughs> it, it was great. So, yeah, around... Just with, going back to the perinatal anxiety, I mean, obviously a lot of yeah. women, you know, 80% of women will have some form of uh, perinatal anxiety or possibly depression. Was there anything that particularly helped you during that time? Um, to, to be honest with you, I actually never really acknowledged it. Um, I knew that, so I had the baby blues. They came in at around about that day. I think it might've been day five because I remember it was the night before I left the hospital and, and they just sort of hung around. And I remember probably a few weeks in, um, at times I was thinking, I don't think things are quite right the way I'm feeling, but then at the same time I sort of thought, well, I'm a first-time mum, having anxieties uh, would be pretty common. Um, but, yeah, it probably wasn't until Theodore was about five months that I actually acknowledged how how bad the anxiety uh, was. I just put on a front in front of everyone. So nobody, not even my husband picked up that, uh, that I was feeling that way. Um, I sort of just kept it all to myself because yeah, I, I don't know what it was. I think I just, it was probably my own mind where I was thinking, um, 
you know, I don't want people thinking that I'm not grateful for having our baby boy or that I don't want to be a mum. But yeah, I think it was just that whole, you know, your life pretty much is turned upside down for the good. Um, But in that initial beginning, it was was really, really challenging. Um, for the mums and dads out there. I mean, obviously, I sort of said before that, you know, anxiety and depression, certainly in the first few weeks to months after pregnancy, after the baby's born, can be quite um, prevalent, not only in women but also in men as well. And, uh, you know, if you do acknowledge it in your own self, and unfortunately now, you know, the, the child maternal nurses are asking you questions with respect to your mental health, uh, if you go back for your six-week check with your GP or your obstetrician, we're also doing a postnatal check in terms of um, anxiety and depression. But at any point in time, if you're worried in terms of your own mental health, then you know, one of the good resources is Panda, which runs a sort of a, a, a business hours sort of helpline between 9am and 7.30pm on a Friday. And their num- number is uh, 1300 726 but of course, you can also contact Beyond Blue and Lifeline as well. And if you're fortunate enough to be involved with a, a private obstetrician, paging them at any time if you're worried about your mental health is particularly important. So looking out for things like how you're sleeping, how you're eating, whether you've had any change in your mood, loss of interest, feeling guilty about stuff, particularly if you have any suicidal thoughts or worse still, any homicidal infanticidal thoughts because, you know, these are very common things that people have and you shouldn't be uh, embarrassed by any feelings you do have and you should seek the appropriate counsel and support. So certainly encourage you to you know, utilise your network, you know, it'll be your partner, it'll be your mum, your dad, your friends, your family, but then also healthcare professionals as well. Yeah. But fortunately, fortunately you managed to get through it on your own and, um, you know, you're probably blessed by having a, a bubba who was um, you know, very good after that, gave you sleep and gave you time to make number two. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, look, I mean, if there's anyone, um, you know, any women out there who, who are feeling, um, who, who is feeling anxious or depressed, um, you know, my advice is, is definitely speak up. Don't, don't suffer in silence because looking back now, um, you know, I really wish I had have said something and it would have really made those initial few months much more, um, you know, bearable. Um, you know, I look back now and I sort of, I, I don't know how or why um, I kept it to myself. Um, yeah, so definitely speak up and, and seek help for sure. So now obviously um, William's nine weeks, have you had any perinatal anxiety or depression this time around? No, no, I feel absolutely fantastic this time around. I've had no baby blues. I've had the occasional days where I've been, you know, a little bit teary, but that's just, you know, sleep deprivation and feeling a bit overwhelmed with a toddler and baby. Um, but yeah, I've, I've have experienced absolutely nothing um, compared to what I did with Theodore. It's been a really beautiful experience this time around. And I, and I think you said. You know, the same, probably the biggest thing I think uh, I find in terms of women, uh, certainly after birth, is the lack of sleep. And if, you know, anyone, if you were to make them sleep deprived, uh, anyone's going to be anxious and depressed. And so 
making sure you do take time to yourself, particularly in those first few weeks as you adjust to the the nuances of being a a new mum and also accepting other people's help you know we I think you know we live in a society now where we you know we feel we, we should be bulletproof and we should be able to do things you know by ourselves but allowing people to assist you drop off meals you know you know your husband or your partner um, you know look after look after the baby so that um, you know you can go and have a sleep you know if you're two mums you know one mum take the baby out and the other one have a bit of a kid really important. Yeah, um, definitely. So anyway, so we just we 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 you know, we've got about another fifteen minutes of this, but I, I wanted to sort of talk about William's pregnancy then. So tell yeah. us a little bit about how you know obviously you became pregnant. Did you you know did you say how we're going to go ahead this month and get pregnant again pretty much straight away? Was it? Yep. So um, I think Theodore was about eighteen months or so when we decided, or maybe a little bit younger when we decided to uh, start trying for William. And again, we were very fortunate. Uh, we decided it was the August we started trying, and I fell pregnant in the August. Um, I suppose you know we should again. You know, everyone knows twenty percent chance of getting pregnant every month. Yeah. And so you know the likelihood of pregnancy for the general couple is that. 80% will be pregnant within a year. You were fortunate that it happened, uh, you know, pretty quickly each time. But then, again, yeah. you probably had 10 years of practice. So, you know, you were, you've, <laughs> you've been practising that whole time and you just got it right, nailed it the first time. Hey. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but um, was there any hiccups in that first part of pregnancy with William? No, no hiccups with him. Um, again, I was really unwell um, for the first 20 weeks. Um, so this time around, I took a bit more of a natural approach. So I did um, some acupuncture. Um, I was wearing the seasickness bands, um, couldn't touch um, or smell ginger. I was just completely turned off from that, from um, Teddy's pregnancy. Uh, but pretty soon after, I was um, taking on Danzatron again just to get through. And again, it was just all that shift work and then juggling a toddler and a business and um, yeah, it was it was pretty tiring again. But um, yeah, the uh, the thirteen week scan was all clear. Um, Twenty week scan was all clear, and I'd started to feel really good. And then when I was twenty three weeks, um, little Teddy um, tripped over my foot and broke his right femur and went into a full hip spiker. Um, so I had to take six weeks off work, which was a bit of a blessing and a, it was in summer, um, but, you know, we were pretty housebound anyway. Um, and, yeah, it was around 23, 24 weeks that I started to experience um, a lot of Braxton Hicks. Um, and they sort of over a few days, initially I just thought it was just sort of growing pains and then they started to become a bit more intense um called my obstetrician up and I said you know look this is what's happening I said baby's moving really well I've got no bleeding um but they are getting stronger and he said you need to come in here now and we need to check you um and so I had my cervix checked I had a scan and and thankfully everything was okay um and he sort of just you know had put it down that my uterus was probably a little bit sort of irritable from lifting um, my, you know, now 18 kilo toddler in a hip spiker. So, 
um, yeah, it was it was pretty challenging. Um, I think I again at around about twenty five weeks, I was on the phone again to him, just saying, you know, they were coming in waves at this stage, um, and I can't remember if I was checked over again or not then, but. I got my husband pretty much just to take time off work so that he could do all the lifting with Teddy um, because it was just starting to to stress me out quite a bit. Um, but yeah, we got to I guess we got over that thirty week mark, and I was um, I was feeling good. I was feeling pretty tired. Um, I think it was again at thirty one weeks. I was at work, and I started to have this increased. Um, cramping uh, that started again and um, I was um, yeah I, I was at work and I and I know that like I was sort of leaning over and um, yeah I, I remember saying to one of the nurses I think I need to give my doctor a call because I'm really uncomfortable here um, gave Peter a call and he said, come on up. Um, and again, things were all checked over and um, everything was fine. Um, but, yeah, it sort of just went on and off for the remainder of the pregnancy. Um, sorry, so, Joe. Braxton Hicks are, you know, relatively common and a lot of women will get them and they're sort of, you know, the testing, the testing um, sort of, you know, contractions preparing you for pregnancy. The true test of whether you go into labour, of course, is if those contractions increase in frequency and or intensity and are associated with any blood loss or fluid loss. But uh, the most important thing from my perspective is exactly what you did. If you're worried about the contractions or the Braxton Hicks becoming strong, it's particularly important to come in, number one, to check the cervix, and number two, also to check the baby, but also sometimes that can be related to a urinary tract infection. So it's often nice to be able to um, you know, see the woman and make sure that everything's okay. But that's good that all that went re- relatively well. Uh, so, all righty. So basically we'll... Um, we might just take a little break now and we'll go to some, uh, we'll go to some advertising uh, proudly brought to you by Tiny Hearts. Hey guys, Nikki here, co-founder at Tiny Hearts Education. At Tiny Hearts, our mission is to bring education to all Australian parents through first aid and birthing courses so you can move through pregnancy, childbirth and parenthood with confidence. To come along to one of our courses, head to tinyheartseducation.com and use the code PODCAST10 to get $10 off any course booking. That's all from me. Let's get back to Joe and today's story. So welcome back. So we were just uh, talking about Braxton Hicks. We are talking about how at 31 weeks, obviously, it had these intense type of traction pains and obviously the cervix was checked and everything was fine. So tell us what happened thereafter. Uh, yeah, so thereafter I just went for um, a growth scan at 32 weeks and this was just purely because um, Teddy uh, was small and um, the, the you know placenta hadn't sort of been as functioning as great with him. So we just wanted to make sure that everything was all good and that was all clear. But uh, we noticed that little Will was in the breech position. Um, and at that point uh, we weren't... We weren't worried about it. Peter sort of just said, you know, look, we'll just see how things go. Hopefully, bubs will flip around soon. Um, and he just sort of sent me away and just said, you know, do lots of sort of forward leaning positioning um, and, 
you know, some acupuncture and, and so forth. And I did all of that. Uh, but little Will was stubborn. And at 35 weeks, he still remained breech. And uh, we decided to do an ECV. And that was on the basis of how I carried with Teddy because I was, you know, quite petite and Pete was worried that we would, you know, miss the window um, of opportunity to flip him if we left it to sort of 37, 38 weeks. So we decided to do it um, early at 35 weeks. Um, yeah, and that was that was all successful. So, yes, yeah, so an ECV, um, for those of you that uh, don't know about it, it's called an external cephalic version. So when the baby's in a breech position, the bottom is generally speaking at the, at the bottom, basically. The baby's bottom is towards the vagina and the baby's head sitting quite up high underneath the rib cage. And if the baby's in a nice U shape, so they've got a head up at the top, their bottom's at the bottom and their legs go back, back, back up to their head, it makes it very easy for us to, or not easy, it makes it easier for us to be able to turn the baby. If the baby's legs are actually dangling down into the pelvis, it's a lot harder uh, to do an ECV. And generally in those cases, we tend not to do it because the baby will actually, the legs will anchor themselves within the pelvis and not allow the baby to turn around. So there are a few conditions that we as obstetricians look for in terms of being able to facilitate a baby turning around. Number one is Good number of good amount of fluid around baby, making sure the baby's head's being able to flex or be tucked, chin tucked onto its chest. No cord around the neck, so we look for any cord that's happening around the neck, and of course the baby being in that breech position, like a U shape. And uh, then what we do is we gently, um, uh, you know, we bring up to birth suite in most cases, do a bit of a trace of baby. Some doctors give some medication to help relax the uterus a little bit and 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 others don't I must admit I don't because I think that mothers sometimes get a little bit more anxious than not with the with the increasing amount of uh, it's it's almost like an adrenaline type drug it makes your heart race a little bit and then what we do is pop a little bit of pressure underneath baby's bottom and a bit of pressure on baby's head and just like somersaulting we try to somersault that baby around so we push the baby's um, bottom up and bring the baby's head down and so imagine we just gently turn the baby's head and bottom around so that in the pelvis or in the belly uh, we get the baby's head going from say 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock and the bottom to go from 6 o'clock to 12 o'clock. And for those of you who are interested in looking at what an ECV looks like and um, how it can be effective, you can jump on my Instagram page uh, at Dr. Joseph Scroy and I can obviously click on the link in this um, podcast series and just go to my Instagram TV and you'll see a nice little ECV. I did it took about two minutes of a woman who had a baby who was breech and then we managed to convert it into head down and she had a lovely baby a couple of days ago called Albion. So he's, uh, I'm going to go up and see him very soon. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, obviously it's very successful. Yes, it was. And everything went well. Interesting to note that you say um, – the medication. So I did have the medication. Um, and to be honest, that was actually the worst part of the ECV. So the actual maneuver itself was fine. It was a little bit uncomfortable, but um, the medication, it is, it's just like having that massive adrenaline rush. And yeah, it was pretty full on. <laughs> I mean, there, there is evidence to say that the, the that, that medication called butylene or actually does help in helping the baby turn around. 
but it has to be weighed up against feeling terrible and, and ratty. Yeah. So I tend to, on, on an individual basis, if I think the belly, if I think the uterus is not irritable and it's not going to tighten up, then you know, doing it without the the butylene is quite nice because it means the mum doesn't feel as overly anxious. But sometimes, of course, it might be beneficial because you want to get the result of obviously having a head down. So that was done at 35 mm-hmm. weeks. And then what, what sort of happened at the remainder of the pregnancy then? Um, so at 37 weeks, I uh, went and had an appointment and um, I had a scan done in the rooms um, and uh, William hadn't or had shown that he hadn't done any growing. Um, so he was still measuring around about 35 weeks at that point um, and my fundal height was about 34 centimetres, I think it was. Um so Peter said, look, we'll just keep an eye on it for now. Um, you know, again, another small baby. Fluid looked really good. Um, and at 38 weeks, um, I went along to another appointment, um, had a scan again. Um, and again, William had done um, pretty much no growing. But um, interesting, this time round, um, the abdomen was looking very skinny. So, um what you mentioned earlier um, when looking at, at the growth of the baby. Um, yeah, we sort of weighed up everything um, and we decided that it was um, of, you know, Will's best interest to induce me a couple of days later. Um, and, and I was pretty uncomfortable at that stage in the pregnancy, had really bad pelvic girdle pain. Um, I think my husband thought I was, you know, going into labour with all my groans and squeals, and <laughs> uh, so at that point, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was ready. I was ready to have him. So, um, yeah, 38, 38 weeks and two days, uh, we went in for an induction to bring little Will out. And so, um, how was your induction this time? Uh, this time round, it was it was really good actually. So I I'd, I'd sort of expressed um, that I I didn't really want well I wanted to try and avoid the drip if possible, um, just because I felt like you know first stage was a bit sort of out of control for me and um, so we did the prostaglandin gel uh, in the morning and um, I started to labor away. Um, so I was, again, I was, I was pretty comfortable. And then at around about, I think it was 1130 in the morning, um, I had my waters broken. Um, and, uh, probably maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes later, um, it was all hands on deck and, and I was in pretty active labor. (laughs) Um, and yeah, by, um, I just used the TENS machine um, this time round and um, I think it was around about 1.30 I started to transition and then began pushing at 2 p.m. Um, another, quick, another quick one. Another quick one. <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, so what happened this time round with the birth? Um, did, so your husband, did your husband catch the baby? He did, he did, but uh, he had to be a little bit more hands-on this time. Um, so I actually found when I started um, pushing with William that um, initially, um, you know, Peter had said to me that his head was a bit sort of um, positioned a little bit sort of oddly. So I had to start pushing, but I didn't have the urge to push. But he said, 
you're going to need to start pushing just to really help guide your baby down um, to get things moving along. And once his head sort of got over that little bit of a hump, um, he he really sort of came down and, and descended into my pelvis. But um, I noticed when I was pushing that, um, you know, comparing it to Theodore's birth, I was working a lot harder. Um, and I remember saying to everyone in the room, I'm saying, how long have I got to go? Because I was just using every ounce of energy and strength. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, this baby's not not moving. Um, and it wasn't long after that that I delivered his head, but then, um, yeah, and I thought once his head was delivered, I thought, oh, this is this is awesome. One more contraction and bubs will be out. Um, and then that contraction came and went and I gave it everything and there was just no movement. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what is going on here? Um, and then I remember um, – Peter saying to my husband, he's like, I need you to grab her leg. And then the midwife had the other leg and they sort of brought them up to my chest, but then out as sort of far as they could go. Um, and Peter just sort of maneuvered um, Will out. And, you know, afterwards he said that he'd had some mild shoulder dystocia. So I didn't know that at the time. I just thought, um, you know, maybe he's a bigger baby coming out. and. Um, yeah, uh, it, was, it was quite interesting, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, so in terms of, I mean, it's interesting. Often I find the, the babies that you convert from breech to head head down for birth, they're, so their heads have been so used to being up underneath the ribs that they've got a head shape that sort of it hasn't had enough time to mould into the pelvis. I often do find that sometimes the descent through the last part of labour in the pushing phase is a little bit harder than a baby's head that sort of had an opportunity over a long period of time to mould to the baby, to the mother's yeah. pelvis. Um, and the other thing, of course, with the shoulder dystocia is where the shoulders of the baby are trying to come under the pubic arch and they get stuck. So one of the ways of thinking about that is imagine you've got a, a truck that you're driving under a bridge and the truck is the distance between the top of one shoulder to the top of another. So the baby, when the baby's head comes down, normally when it's birthed, it's birthed so that it's looking down towards mum's bottom, so away from the pubic bone. And then the baby's head will turn to lie on a side so that it's facing one way, either right or left. And that will mean that the shoulders are straight up and down from you know, the top of the top of the pubic bone all the way down to the bottom, just like a truck. And the pubic bone is like the bridge. So if you've got a truck that's hitting the top of a bridge, it's not going to get under the bridge and it's going to, you know, potentially get stuck. And so as those shoulders are coming from inside out, they're coming underneath, they kind of fit underneath this pubic bone, just like a truck under a bridge, but they get stuck. And this is actually, you know, probably the thing that makes obstetricians and midwives have grey hairs because we always get worried that if the baby's body stays inside when the head is born for more than six minutes, we can start getting a bit of deoxygenation to the baby and we get a little bit worried. So there's several manoeuvres that we try to do in order to get those baby shoulders to come under underneath that pubic bone. And one of the things is, like you said, we push the legs right back. And so that opens up the diameter or the, the distance between the bottom uh, and the pubic bone. So it's like sort of 
jacking up, I suppose, the the the, the um, bridge the, so that the the truck can come underneath it. And the other thing that we try to do as well is we try to tilt the shoulders or try to collapse the shoulders so that it's a bit like having the truck and putting on it a bit of an angle so that it can come down the um, come down the birth canal. So you know, there's a whole range of different manoeuvres we utilise, and a very skilled obstetrician like Peter is was able to do everything without you being feeling like there was a panic or 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 any concern at all. And it's not until after the fact that, of course, you told about it. You yeah, know, I think, um, yeah, he he was very calm about that. And to be honest with you, I had no idea what was going on. I just, you know, he had sort of just, um, you know, told Ash what to do. And then he pretty much said to me, Ness, I need you to give me absolutely everything you've got on the next push. Um which I did and, yeah, like I said, I had no idea and it wasn't until after after the birth that he said, you know, um, there was it was shoulder dystocia and, and stuff, but, yeah, I had no idea. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, ultimately that's, that's the best way of, I mean, you know, you want your birthing experience to be as calm and as controlled and as, you know, idealistic as you as you want it to be, and you don't need it to be sort of this sense of oh my god, the world, the, what's happening now? And yeah. you, know, the, you know, obviously yeah. there are emergencies that happen, and there's always going to be circumstances where that occur. But you know, like I said, you know, managing those situations without the patient knowing is key to being a, a good obstetrician and a good midwife. And you know, I've, I've had a similar story where I had a GP colleague of mine who came and saw me for. Um, or his wife came and saw me for her pregnancy and that I had a really bad shoulder dystocia. I've probably got that grey hair there is probably related <laughs> to that. Um, and afterwards I said, oh, yeah, that was a pretty pretty big shoulder dystocia. He said, really? Because he, he had no idea, just the way it was managed seamlessly. And I think, you know, that then serves well for them because, you know, they've had a good experience and to know about it afterwards is is, is needed to be known obviously for a debrief but you know not something that will stain them in terms of their in terms of their birth and, and actually in saying that that doesn't always happen and and particularly for women you know yourself and my patients are very fortunate that their care is being looked after someone who's done multiple of births and mar- ma- managed multiple complications but we do know that some women are having their babies in the public sector um, with junior doctors who are, you know, learning their craft like I did back in the back in the day, and so you know there will be times where you will have experiences as a woman that will be traumatic. And in actual fact, I had a, a direct message on Instagram today of a woman who had her baby in, in a in a public sector, and she said, you know, I'm being called in to see the the uh, obstetrician, the head of the unit, to talk about my birth, and she. She described in this Instagram post a very traumatic birth experience. Mm. And she said, I'm worried what they're going to say to me when I, when I have this debrief, you know, are they going to say they did something wrong? And I said, no, 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 this is just an opportunity for you to be able to work through what happened during your birth so that you're not scared about becoming pregnant again and not scared about birth again and also gives you an opportunity to ask ask all those questions that have been tormenting you because obviously she was asking me and I wasn't involved in her care. So I think it's really important if you do have an experience, whether it be in the private, the public sector, at home, whatever the case might be, that you definitely debrief if you're worried about stuff and, and implore your healthcare practitioner 
to do it if they're not offering it in the first place. Yeah. But, I mean, you had a beautiful I think, yeah, Peter awesome. offered, um, I think I had maybe two debriefs. So I had one while I was in hospital, then again at the six-week um, checkup as well. But, you know, as I said to him, I said, I, I you know, the whole room was calm and, um it was a positive experience for me. So um, even though there was the shoulder dystocia, you know, I've been lucky enough to, to walk away having that really positive experience. And, yeah, it was interesting because, you know, William was 3.2 kilos. So when he said to me um, that there was shoulder dystocia, I, you know, I thought, you know, you hear about that happening in big babies. And I thought, you know, 3.2 kilos isn't really that big. <laughs> um, but, no. I was, yeah, it, it's just maybe the shape of my pelvis. and. Yeah, it's probably designed to have babies around two point nine three kilos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, look, thank you very much, Vanessa, for your time today. I mean, we've learnt. I mean, we've we've got covered a lot actually in this sort of yeah, we have. <laughs> over over an hour session. We've talked about nuchal translucency and how that relates to chromosomal abnormalities, decreased fluid around baby, a small baby. We've talked about an ECV or an external cephalic version an induction of labour, and lastly, a bit about shoulder dystocia. So it's been a, a potpourri of obstetric medicine. <laughs> I've enjoyed having a chat with you. Do you think there's another baby on the cards? Are we going to wear pink socks and get a girl? Oh, look, I definitely don't feel like I'm done. Um, so I've already told my husband there's definitely a third. Um, but when that will be, we'll uh, we'll wait and see. <laughs> if We're just enjoying the two boys at the moment. So, yeah, it's it's fun times, that's for sure. Well, thank you so much for your time. And, everyone, you can listen to other episodes of Birth, Bub and Beyond via your podcast um, app, uh, whether it be Google Play, Apple or Spotify, and we launch each new episode once a fortnight on a Thursday. Make sure you keep up to date with all things with respect to Tiny Hearts Education and also myself, Dr. Joseph Scroy. Uh, via both our Instagram and Facebook accounts. So I keep updating on a regular basis with respect to both fertility, gynecology, obstetrics. And um, so if you've got any pregnancy-type questions you want to uh, ask, then I tend to run a Q&A on a weekend where you can ask all those questions. Um, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast play and get notifications when our new episodes drop. Thanks again, Vanessa, and hopefully uh, you, those you. two boys don't busy and that... Uh, you know, um, you, you definitely go for the number three. I can tell you, three is awesome. <laughs> I have been told that. <laughs> Enjoy Thank your you day. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Bye for now. <laughs>